Hi, I'm Dave Ferguson, pastor of the Collegedale Church here on the campus of Southern Adventist University. Welcome to our podcast. We're going to explore today some of the relevant words of Jesus Christ in Scripture to my life, to your life. So enjoy the message. Happy Sabbath once again. It is good to be with you here today to worship. Thank you. We're about to go back through that. Uh, Thank you very much uh, to John and Sally for honoring the pastors here at your congregation. I just want to say on my part, I'll just speak for myself, though I feel confident I could say this for the others on our team too. It is a privilege. It's a deep, deep privilege to be a pastor here in this place, this congregation. Uh, I love you. And I'm delighted to be a part of this family. If you are a guest, a visitor, welcome. So glad you are here. You've found the right place. You should consider staying. But consider at home however often you're able to be here. Thank you to our students. What a delight. We brought some power today uh, here with our wind symphony. Thank you, Director uh, Parsons, for leading that. Thank you so much. We're continuing on in our series, Rescuer, today. And the title is Sealed. Sealed. We've been going through the book of Revelation, so if you are here for the first time, uh, it's okay. You'll be, you'll be just fine. We'll, we'll catch you up on a couple of things and dig right on in, but I'd like to invite you to turn to Isaiah 29 as we launch. Isaiah chapter 29. As we do this, I know we've got a, a couple of deacons here with us. Just go ahead and stand. Don't go anywhere yet. I want to give a little explanation. But then the deacons are going to make their way through the congregation with journals for anyone who does not have one or wants another one. Uh, they are free to you. We'd love for you to have one. If you're only ever here this one time, you probably ought to grab one. If you're a child and you're thinking, well, but maybe these are just for the adults. No, 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 no. You'll see a Uh, just a message in there that's from me. They're great to be able to draw and uh, write notes. They're almost entirely empty, so you can decide what it is that's important. And again, even if you have one and you'd like one for somebody else or you forgot yours today, these are for you. We'd love for you to have one. I'm just going to say it. I've had conversation after conversation in the course of this series with individuals saying, oh my goodness, this study of the book of Revelation is so wonderful, it's hitting my heart just in an important place, and then they'll show me notes. <laughs> and, and so probably something's going to happen, not because of me, but because of the book of Revelation, that you're going to want to be able to write a note, go check somewhere else, something that we have been uh, doing, maybe in Isaiah 29, for instance, Uh, And so I encourage you, raise a hand and ask for one of those. They are for you. We have plenty of them, and we like it that you would have one. So I've kind of bought you just a little bit of time to find Isaiah 29 as we launch our way into this study. The 11th verse says this. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed on a scroll or in a scroll. And if you give the scroll to someone who can read and say to him, read this, please, he will answer, I can't, it is sealed. Which is a fascinating thing that you would give somebody a scroll that is sealed and ask them to read it knowing that it is sealed. Ah, but maybe there is something deeper than simply not being able to to see the words. For it goes on here in Isaiah. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this, please, he will answer, I don't know how to read. In other words, you can actually have the language right there on a piece of paper, but if you don't know the language, you cannot read it, right? 
So it's not that you can't see the symbols. It's not that you can't see the words. How many of you are mastering a new language? Anybody here? Okay, there are a handful of us. And if you are trying to master a new language, you are regularly caught a little bit in a situation where you might even know some of the words, but that one's an important one. You don't know the word, so you cannot understand it. Others of us have been in situations where you've been in the middle of a conversation and you've been talking and functioning as if all is normal only to realize that a phrase was being used that you are not familiar with how it is used in this context. And so you had the right words, but you didn't have the understanding. Sometimes it can actually flip it around so the thing you thought it meant, it's actually the complete opposite. So it's hidden it's misunderstood or not understood, it is sealed. I'm gonna invite you to bow your head with me in prayer as we dig into this challenging section of scripture. Father, thank you very much for your love and the blessing of your presence. Would you, would you, Lord God, come in your spirit, you've promised to do so, translate in our hearts something important for us that we would never have a chance to know or understand except you are present here. We claim the promise of that gift in Jesus Christ, amen. Well, uh, maybe because it was two weeks ago uh, that, uh, that we last talked, uh, maybe it's because there are some here who have, this is just brand new for you, or maybe because some of you will, like me, just really appreciate a little bit of a review anyway. We're gonna kinda go back before we go forward. We spent some time two weeks ago in Revelations chapter, chapters four and five. We're headed into chapter six, but I'd like to just kinda lean back and then get a run forward. The first verse of that fourth chapter, it says, after this I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. After this being after the letters to the seven churches. Those letters to the seven churches on occasion included conversation around how things were going that weren't going so well. Sometimes persecution, difficulty, challenge. One might think as you come into this particular place today that where I come from, the world I come from, it's chaotic, it's difficult, it's challenging, it's depressing, it's painful, it's maybe wildly successful for you at least today, but the challenges of our world here on earth, we might be tempted to think as we look toward heaven and we wonder, God, if you cared about me, why is it so difficult for me that up in heaven, God is on some retreat or cruise or he's at a, just a vacation spot, everything is swimmingly wonderful there. And God says, actually, what I'd like for you to do is I'd like for you, John, not just to talk about and stick with what's going on there on earth. Come peek up here. By the way, what an amazing anthem from the voice of God. I'm open to you. I am open to you. I am the God who is present for you. I am the God who comes to you. I am the God who opens the way for you to be able to see into the very heart of who I am. Well, you recall it there. There's a throne. There are four creatures. There are 24 elders. The center of it all is the God character, the almighty God. You remember it? Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under the wings. 
They had, they, there was nothing hidden. They were able to see it all. And these living creatures that are surrounding the throne, they're in the middle of this space. They continue on in the eighth verse, day and night, never stopping their saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The one in the center, the one on the throne in the middle of it all. So if we were um, doing some preparation for a movie or a television show, there would be a soundtrack that we could include that is going on day and night continually, and that soundtrack, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, holy, 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 the one who was and is and is to come, holy, holy, holy. It sounds a little monotonous, right? As if these are not terribly creative people, maybe, but we know this is symbolism, right? So what is this all about? Ah, we recalled that this is not the only day and night passage. We jumped, last two weeks ago, we jumped into the middle of the book, You recall like an arrow, the pointy end of all that is going on in the book of Revelation lands in chapter 12 where in the seventh verse the writer John says, and there was war in heaven. The context of all of this. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. And so we had this kind of epiphany, this moment of realization that that this holy, holy, holy soundtrack that runs throughout day and night, day and night. It's not simply because you have this God who's full of himself, who needs you to just be sitting there praising, 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 but in fact, there are two tracks that are day and night. Holy, holy, holy. And the accuser's voice. Liar, 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 not worth it, not worthy, not worthy, not worthy. You're in pain. If God loved you, he wouldn't be putting you through this. Not worthy, not holy, 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 holy is the Lord God Almighty. There's an argument, a, a back and forth, like instruments battling one another in the heavens. So God says, look, John, you know a little bit about how it's going in the churches. You know what it's like to be in a world where you don't feel at home. You know what it's like to be imprisoned for believing in me, persecuted, put down. You know what it's like to be about the only one left of my disciples. But I want you to look up in here and know that what you're experiencing down there is an outgrowth of something bigger that's happening, something that's going on in the universe. It is not small, simple, little me. But it is something major going on. You remember Revelation chapter five as we got into it? There they are, holy, 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 with this echo of Revelation 12, not holy, not holy. Yes, holy, liar, telling the truth, not worth it. He is the only thing that will make your life worth it. He is God Almighty. You can be God Almighty. And back and forth, in Revelation chapter 5, we find this interesting 
set of three verses as it begins. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides sealed with seven seals. And the one who sat on the throne is the Almighty, the one that they are chanting holy, holy, holy about, or that they are saying liar, liar about. And he holds the scroll. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Now time out, who's holding the scroll? Creator God Almighty, who's worthy to open the scroll? Who can open the scroll? Duh. Have you seen who's holding it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside. Ah, of course, this isn't about the ability to open a paper rolled up. There is this anthem back and forth, holy, holy, liar, liar. And the one on trial, the one at the center of the focus is the one in the middle, the one who's on the throne. It is God Almighty. And for him to step up and say, oh, I can answer the question. I am holy. I don't know if you've ever been put in a position of having to try to defend yourself in a way that cannot possibly be done. Because if you indeed are a liar, of course you would lie. And God can't open the scroll. And it has seven seals on this scroll. And these seals, as we come to learn, are gonna have to be broken off. They're an impediment. They're a barrier to the scroll being opened. And by the way, it's not like you could read one-seventh of the scroll if you broke off one seal. You gotta break them all off. And so in this understanding, we dig just a little bit into what it means for this scroll to be sealed. And as you recall, we regularly go to scripture to help us understand scripture. We can have all sorts of wild thoughts, And they might even sometimes be right, but why not check with scripture? Because as we've talked about it in the past, this book written by John is not just a collection of awkward Greek phrases that scholars of Greek would say are so poorly written, this shouldn't even be considered a book of scripture. No, 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 those who dig deeper understand that what you have here is someone so well acquainted with Hebrew and the Old Testament and the background of this belief that leads into Christianity that he is writing in Hebrew in Greek. So we go and check some of this out. I'm gonna take you to Isaiah chapter 29 again. Or if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read or say, read this please, he will answer, I don't know how to read. So it's one thing to be able to see the words. It's one thing even sometimes to be able to pronounce the words. It's another thing altogether to understand the words and not to just understand them as individual words but in the meaning of it all. You ever been told something? And you can repeat it back, but you just do not know what it means. Ever been uh, in one of those situations where you're trying to fix something that you have instructions for that are in perfectly good English, but not sure perfectly good even fits quite right? Well, this isn't the only place we might go. You're going to be familiar with this. Daniel chapter 12, you recall it, don't you? In the eighth verse, I heard, but I did not understand. It's not that the words were secret to me, it's that I could not 
understand the words. So I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of this be? You see, the words are known, but they are not understood. That is a very appreciable, well uh, understood take here, is that to be sealed, this scroll to be sealed, does not mean you couldn't know what the words are, but in fact, what it does for sure mean is you don't understand the implications. I don't, I don't get it. I don't get it. You re- recall the rest of this, Daniel chapter 12, verse nine, he replied, this messenger, go your way, Daniel, because the words are closed up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless or refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand, but those who are righteous will understand. There is a divide between those who understand and those who do not understand. And so here you have a scroll that is sealed up with seven seals. Could it be that it's not that the words are not known, but that this is not understood? At least that's the core implication. And so we go on in Revelation 5 to read, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He came, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And two verses later, The creatures will say, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men from God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You can open the scroll. Jesus, the lamb slain. By the way, you recall it in verse eight of that chapter. There's, who can open the scroll? Who can open the scroll? Oh, don't be depressed. The Lion of Judah can open the scroll. Look, the Lion of Judah, and as John turns to see the Lion of Judah, what does he see? He sees a lamb bleeding out. You see, God cannot defend himself in a convincing way to what is going on here. But Jesus can. Not to make some weird point that Jesus isn't God, for sure he is. But something has happened. What is it that has happened? Why can he break these seals of lack of understanding off of this scroll? It's because you were slain. Some of us, we read that, you're slain. It's just another way for being dead, right? You just, you, you died. The Greek could well be translated here that this was the lamb that was killed violently. That this is, and and you read in the Old Testament, these prophecies of the one who was to come, disfigured, brutalized on my behalf. And so you have the chant, worthy, holy, he's the one you want. No, he's not. No, he's not. He is not worthy. He's a liar. He will take you down. He's keeping you down. Don't follow him. And for God to just go, nah-uh, not convincing, but for the lamb who was slain. And we recall all the way back to Eden and Genesis chapter three and the conversation as Adam and Eve say, God says, if we eat, we will die. If we sin, we will die. If sin is taken into us, it kills. Sin will kill. And what does Lucifer say? What does the serpent say? What? 
No, that's a lie. You will not die from sin. It's God you gotta be worried about. He's the one keeping you from what you want. If there's any problem here, if there's any trouble here, it'll be at his hands, not sin. And the lamb comes forward, killed by violence. And where is God in the midst of that cross of Calvary? Well, Jesus will say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The violence is not at the hands of God. The violence is at the hands of us. finally get to see what happens when somebody really has sin come home. Everything that we're doing, your last Tuesday and next Wednesday, is all a period of time when God is saying, please open, just look up here and I will show you what it is that's going on. Now I realize, the revelator says, I realize there are barriers, we'll call them seven seals, there are barriers to your understanding of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and that you are not safe to go your own way, you are not safe to be your own God, you're not safe to allow somebody else to be your God other than the one who is worthy, 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 and he is worthy, you keep watching, he is worthy, but it's not easy to understand because of the lies that have been breathed into your ears, we have to take some moments and strip away some of these barriers and so here we go. But I'm just gonna take one more shot from two weeks ago because it's in the light of what we've just said that in fact we came across this particular quote, not until the death of Christ was the character of Satan clearly revealed to the angels and to the unfallen worlds. You could read that this way, not until the death of Christ was the character of God actually really seen in a way that was convincing given what the devil had been saying, what the accuser had been chanting, and then the prevarication and accusations of him who had once been an exalted angel were seen in their true light. The truth was finally seen. Yeah, it's confusing. It's not understood clearly. The, the, the seals need to be stripped from this scroll and it happens at the hands of the lamb. And through the course of chapters six, seven, and into chapter eight, we'll take a look at these seals. So. I'm gonna do a little something here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna share with you the seven seals in a way that makes sense to me. Um, there's the white horse in the second verse of chapter six, the red horse, horse in verse four, black horse, sickly green horse. Some of you will read that pale. The best translation of the Greek would be that kind of green that if you saw somebody like this, you would call the doctor. And worry. Blood is not flowing right. There is a problem. They at best ate something bad. The sickly green horse, two phrases, the fifth seal, characterized by the phrase, how long, how long, O Lord? The people of God are being persecuted, going through difficulty. How long will this keep going on? I thought you were powerful enough. And then who can stand? Another way to think about that is, can I actually be saved? I don't know, these are all impediments that we're gonna see here to our being able to understand who God really is. 
So we'll take a look at it. I'm going to name, and, and look, let's just admit it again. We're going to do this almost every week. There is no shot we can go through line by line, word by word, every bit of what is, is in the book of Revelation. It's just not going to happen that way. Great news is you get to keep studying. So we're going to hit on some things and work through some things, but I'm going to just invite you, and you can go digging and looking, and I think you'll feel relatively well supported are the notions. We're going to start with the second of the seals, that the red horse brings war. So now if we think about it, these seals keep us from understanding who God's character really is. I think it's fascinating to think about the fact that war is one of those things that we would cause us to wonder, how is it that this is actually truly a loving God when war and famine and death and injustice are occurring? These are impediments to our actually believing God says he, who, that God is who he says he is. How many people do you know who've walked away from a relationship with Jesus because of pain, because of sorrow, because of death, because of things that truly are unfair. And then, of course, the challenge of even getting our minds around the idea that we can be saved. The seventh chapter is an interesting one in that it brings about a bit of a pause, a, a bit of a change, and in, almost in response to this question, who can stand? We see that the lamb identifies individuals who have chosen him and he gives them a robe of righteousness. Boy, we could go a long ways here and we'll get into some more of that later. But some of us have grown up really wrestling with and struggling over the question of how much do I need to do, how much, how much of my salvation gets purchased by my actions, by saying the right thing, doing the right thing, being there on the right day, whatever it is. Can I really be saved? Because let's be honest, I know about me, but you don't know about me. And I can put a tie on it and we're good. Except in here, I know my struggles, I know what's going on, and so thankful that the story doesn't go that the, the lamb gave us crisp white thread to sew our own clothes. Or we would truly be emperors with no clothes. But in fact, he gives us a white robe. Well, so these seals, my contention is, are barriers to our understanding the character of God and whether he really truly deserves that description, holy, holy, or liar, liar, which is it? These seals need to be broken because these seals contribute to us questioning whether he is holy. Now you've noticed I've put a question mark at the beginning, question mark at the end at the far right side there, a question mark by the first seal, the white horse, a question mark at the silence of heaven, which happens at the time of the seventh seal, because we're not gonna really be able to dig too far into all seven seals, so we're gonna dig into the first one and the seventh one, if you, part, if you just indulge me a little bit. The first one, the white horse rider. Now, there are a couple reasons, important reasons, why I've chosen to spend a little bit more time on this one, and one of them is, well, I, I, let me be honest with you, it's been my experience that our faith community puts a lot of stock in being correct. 
about Scripture. We might say, and pardon me if you're a guest and, and not from our faith community, but we might say something like, we have the truth. I mean, let the, listen to ourselves. By the way, that's not some shot I'm taking at digging for the truth and valuing the truth. But one has to wonder, how good do you feel about being the one who's going to stand up next Sabbath in front of a Sabbath school and, and describe to them the truth of the teachings of the book of Revelation? How many of you are in for that? No, we, many of us don't want any part of that, even if we're good Bible students. I got to tell you that preaching on the book of Revelation is a little bit uh, difficult for my heart in that I have people here at times who have written books on the study of Revelation or teach it currently in our school of religion or, 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 or certainly have many more years of pastoral ministry and preaching than I do. And so, oof, I better get this right. I'd like to do a little digging in the idea of the white horse rider in part because I'd like to share with you two different unpacking, understandings, ideas about who this white horse rider would be, what it stands for. By the time we're done, you're going to notice they are nearly opposite understandings that are both supportable with portions of Scripture. And I could put you at the feet of learned Seventh-day Adventist biblical scholars to support one or the other. And by the way, I'm not sure that it is the most important thing to Jesus that you get the selection right today. I think there's something else that's more important to him. So let's do a little bit of looking. The most common, again, we'll just take a look again. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come. Anybody here feel kind of the music from the wind symphony earlier? If you're back too far, you made a big mistake. You can feel it, which is awesome. They could feel the thunder of this voice come. And look, I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So I'm going to share with you one of the interpretations and then work on some backing of it. The first one is that the white horse is Christ or the gospel, or some might say the church, the work of Christ. That it is going out to conquer, right? Again, I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror determined to win the war. One of the most primary reasons we would say that this is a Christ figure or that this is uh, the, the, the gospel of Christ going out has to do with the color white. Throughout the book of Revelation, I'll have to say primarily because I can share an exception or two, Primarily, whenever white is included, remember the white robes? It's a righteous thing. Now clearly when you get to the red horse, the black horse, the pale horse, what they're bringing is war and famine and death. And so, you know, this is, that's not, there's no calamity that's named here. These are a couple of reasons why Adventist scholars would say, actually this is, as Jesus is coronated at the ascension, 
and Pentecost, then the gospel goes out. And this fits as we work on a timeline of how these seals kind of unfold over time, which is part of the idea. Another uh, um, idea, maybe I'll take this a little bit more in order here. I'm gonna take you to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17. Then the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. One of the reasons that we might think this is Christ is because he's going off to wage war and and the the language of the Greek is he continually seeks to overcome in this war, right? By the way, the word overcome is regularly associated with the followers of the lamb, that they overcome and that he overcame. And so here is this notion of wanting and trying to overcome. But it is a point to make, because we're going to counter a couple of things here as we go forward. And by the way, um, I'm going to just go back a, a slide here to, if I can. This crown that is given is the crown of overcoming. It's Stephanos in Greek. And just in the third chapter, for those who overcome, they will be given a what? A crown. Which, by the way, there are two crowns in the book of Revelation. One of them is the crown of rule, that's not this word. This word, Stephanos, is the crown of overcoming, the award, the, the result of overcoming. It's, it's like the wreath that is given to Olympic winners, right? So this crown of overcoming, and he rode out as a conqueror determined to overcome and to win the war. But we do know, though, that God is not the only one waging war in the book of Revelation, is he? In the 12th chapter, as we keep going back, the dragon was enraged at the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring. So there is a war, but that doesn't necessarily identify who this is. And some would point out, as we read in the fifth verse of Revelation 5, that the elders are pointing out that Jesus has already won the war. Which, of course, doesn't prove anything, but is an interesting challenge. All of the four riders of horses have something in their hands. What is it in the first case? Well, in the first case, I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. So, by the way, just to highlight again what we're doing here, is I am going to be pointing out, number one, there are reasons to decide it is Christ, a Christ character, or the gospel, but as scholars would point out, there are reasons to consider it might not be. The white color of the horse and righteousness, the making war, well, maybe, maybe not. The overcoming and the crown, that seems to be. But this idea of a bow, by the way, this is not typically an instrument of righteousness that we find in Old Testament scripture and other places. In fact, there are some specific and significant places. David, just all sorts of times in the, in the Psalms, is praying over people shooting at him and taking arrows from the shadows and so on. But additionally, Ezekiel chapter 28 and 29, we can't go there right now, but just go look for yourself. In this, there is a type of the enemy of God named Gog. I need to enunciate here. Easy to spell, difficult to make sure you're hearing it right. In, in Ezekiel 28 and 29, Gog's instrument of war is a bow. 
And in fact, what God will do in this section is he will strike the bow from Gog's hands. Well, again, it doesn't prove anything particularly. Interestingly, and scholars will suggest to us that the white horse rider of Revelation 6 is the same as the right horse rider of Revelation chapter 19. So check that one out. I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called faithful and true. With justice he judges and makes war. You can see some of the similarities, right? It is interesting because if you decide that this first white horse rider is not in fact Christ and maybe even an opposite somehow, we'll get there, then describing the white horse rider in Revelation 19 as the faithful and true one actually can make some sense if we go that direction, that there is a not faithful and true one. This one, we're going to make sure you know, is faithful and true. And as he rides up, he's carrying a weapon. You'll notice what it is, though. It's one we've heard about before. Out of his mouth comes what? A sharp sword. Some places it describes a two-edged sword out of the mouth, symbolizing, as John will say over and over in so many different ways, there is a war going on, but it is a war of words. And that the bow shooter, forceful problem maker may be, in fact, something different than the one who has the two-edged sword. And then there's this. <clears throat> By the way, I'm going to tell you where I've landed, and I will admit right now to you that I'm not sure. And I feel pretty healthy about it. I have some, I have a direction, and it partly comes from this particular passage of Scripture. You remember in the Gospels, three of them, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is a telling of the same occasion in slightly different ways. It's right there at the beginning of the week that Jesus dies and is resurrected. He's been in Jerusalem, comes out of Jerusalem, across the valley, and he's looking back at late in the day, probably the sun shining on the white marble, turning it rosy in the sunset. And with all of the pride of a Jew, the disciples are looking at this, and Jesus says, by the way, that is going to be completely destroyed to the point there won't be one stone that will sit on top of the other. It is like crazy cataclysmic sort of language and the disciples turn to him and say this tell us in Matthew 24 when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age now the disciples don't know that they've asked two completely different questions instructive to me it is that Jesus responds to both questions and doesn't let them know he's responding to two different questions could it be that Jesus doesn't care if they get the timing right? He cares that when they go through it, they can still see the hand of God as righteous. Well, scholars describe to us that the telling of Matthew 24 and Luke and, and Mark mirrors what John has waited until Revelation chapter 6, 7, 8 to do. That, that John is mirroring this conversation from Jesus in his vision from Jesus. If you look carefully, 
In Matthew 24, you're gonna see, and I've picked up, I have left a pretty sizable blank at the top of this section because the second thing Jesus points out matches the second seal, war. The third thing he points out, famine. As we include Luke in this conversation, the fourth thing, death and pestilence. The fifth thing, persecution. So it goes right along with it. What Jesus describes will happen. So what is it that actually is top of the list? How would he describe the first thing to happen? And maybe it has something to do with this first seal and the rider of the white horse. So tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will the sign of your coming and the end of the age be? And Jesus responds this way, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. So that in Jesus' telling of this description that is a decent match for the seals in the first five, the first one is deception. And so one has to kind of wonder a little bit about this. By the way, elsewhere in the book of Revelation, you remember, of course, the lamb is the, the thing that changes everything, the one who can open the scroll, right? Well, yes, but there's also a beast that is lamb-like but speaks like a dragon in that Revelation 12 through 13 period of time. Probably a white lamb. So not everything white necessarily means the same thing. And I've come to wonder if it makes best sense in this, and I know I'm in a, uh, an Adventist scholar minority, though there are Adventist scholars that I actually got this from. <laughs> it messes a little bit with our timelines but it starts to make so much sense when we realize the seals are all about God breaking open the doors of heaven and his character to us and answering the questions about whether he's worthy or not. For there will be deceivers. One scholar puts it this way, more likely this rider on a white horse represents not Christ or his agents, but false Christs, even antichrist, a potent indication of the way in which the demonic subtly but convincingly parodies the divine. By the way, I love that this scholar says more likely instead of I am dead certain. For in truth, we're doing two things at the same time. We're digging in scripture, but we're also challenging ourselves about how arrogant we should be with our understandings and how we present them our willingness to keep studying and talking to individuals who may indeed think other than us, in this case, exact opposites. It's Christ and the gospel, or it's a deception of Christ and the gospel, which we know this book is riddled with that conversation. Frankly, I'm not sure how much gets changed which way you go. Because even if we decide, and I don't know, even if we decide that the white horse rider is in fact Jesus and the gospel, you still have Matthew chapter 24 who's saying, yeah, but deception, deception is really at the heart of this. So you're still gonna have it there. I just find it easier to understand if these seals are a barrier to our understanding of the character of God that doesn't sound like the gospel. And as those uh, four horses and horsemen are introduced, every time one of the four creatures steps up and calls out in a loud voice, come, come, 
which scholars suggest to us can easily and well be translated, expose yourself, rip it off, and let's take a look for real. Another quick comment, the writer in Revelation 6 thus is one of the most important enemies in the book. It tells of a time in which false prophets will be so powerful that they will mislead the church and the world. Yeah, even the church. Again, I'll be honest with you, I don't think, I think you could take either position and support yourself. It makes better sense to me that deception is in fact at the core of this white horse. And certainly, in large part, we bring this up to challenge ourselves in terms of how we talk, how we study, how we behave. With the book of Revelation, I uh, enjoy reading Brene Brown. She says these quick things. Faith minus vulnerability and mystery equals extremism. Buckle up. Faith is the vulnerability that flows between the shores of certainty. And then this. If you've got all the answers, then don't call what you do faith. In part, what I want to say to you is, you don't need me to study the book of Revelation. You can study it yourself. We'll keep going. We're digging and I'm loving it. And it's sponsoring all sorts of conversations. But if we decide the only way to even talk about or read the book of Revelation is if you know what it all means from the jump, then we're in trouble. This is about our understanding of God. And so I'm gonna say, sure, I'm gonna say that this is about deception, but it might be the other. In truth, by the way, the most important thing that is happening here is not that we understand the timing, but that we understand the character. And so this ends the seventh seal. He opened the seventh seal and there was silence in heaven for about a half hour. Silence in heaven, what does this even mean? It's not that the silence created the breaking of the seventh seal, but when the seventh seal is broken, there is silence and we recall it, right? We understand what we have been saying. There is this chant, holy, 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 and another one, liar, liar, liar. And by the time the lamb finishes breaking off the seals and the scroll is wide open and you and I get to see everyone falls silent. Because the creatures don't have to chant holy, holy. You know it. And the accuser can't keep chanting liar, liar. Because you understand now. And you understand that the God of Job is the God of Revelation who isn't causing all your pain but has to let it happen for a time because he needs us to understand what our choices mean and how they matter. 
in this seventh chapter, then I saw another angel coming from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And suddenly here, it flips from a scroll that we're trying to break the seals off. Now God is trying to get a seal on. What's that about? But again, it is about understanding. For where will the seal go? It'll go where we have understanding. And so God, when the question comes, who can be saved? Ah, those who look up here, those who are patient long enough, those who see my character are going to see enough to be able to choose me. And for those who understand and choose me, they are, the, you being sealed doesn't have to do with you being able to be a good enough behaviorally kind of Christian, but a submitted person who understands the character of God and has decided you are the holy one, you are the one I want, you are the one I want coming back for me. I'm in, I'm all in, I'm all in. And if you unpack the book of Revelation, you are forced to grapple with this reality that two camps are created. Those who God says, you've decided for me, you are sealed for me. And another group of people that we find in the 13th chapter, we'll look at more later, the one looking like the lamb, but speaking like a dragon, forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark in his right hand or on his forehead. And this mark says, you are mine. This is the question. Whose are you? For you will choose someone to sit on the throne. And there's a grand and great argument that starts with deception and terror and frustration. We, we think of these as all being the, the things that are going to go on way over there as a sign of Jesus coming. Let me tell you, you don't have to wait to encounter pain. It could intensify, but some of us in this room are saying, I don't know how it could intensify, to just be honest with you. You don't know what I've been through. Jesus says, yes, I do. Yes, I do. And I took everything that caused it on myself. And it was violent and it crushed me, as it will do to you. If you fall for the lie and decide your commitment is to the mark and not the seal. And so the one who would break off all those seals has one to place on you so you can be secure. maybe more important than when Jesus comes, is the question, who is it that's coming? Maybe more important than knowing exactly when, which by the way, I was having this conversation with a young student uh, between services. You go find for me all the prophecies given to groups of people where the followers of God knew how it would be fulfilled before it was fulfilled. Go find them. 
Maybe we ought not be super arrogant of exactly how this is all going to go, but maybe that's not even the important point. Maybe the important thing is that Jesus, the Lamb, has shown us that God rightfully belongs on the throne of your heart, and it is your one way out. It is your rescue. So we close where we started, kind of, in Isaiah chapter 52. As we get going, a scholar says that this is a scene that's set in a court of law where a dispute about the view to be taken of a certain person is under consideration. And those present are the judge, the person in question, witnesses brought by the disputing parties, and listeners. So a court scene occurs here in the 52nd chapter of Isaiah. And somebody is being made claims about, against, or supported for, and here comes some support as a witness steps up and says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted, just as there were many who were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured violently beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths. And heaven was silent. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard will be opened. And they will understand. Lord God, we thank you for your word, even the challenging parts of it, those bits that we struggle to understand. And thank you, thank you, thank you for the encouragement that even if we get something wrong, you still are the thing that saves us, not our understanding, not our wisdom, not our certainties. Lord God, as we travel through this next week, some of us facing calamities that are unspeakable and difficult, some of us not, cruising along, feeling wonderfully well, through the course of a little fall break. Lord God, keep speaking in our hearts. Keep bringing your words to us. May we come enough in contact with who you are to be able to make the decision. You are holy. You are, you are our God. You are the one we want to come back for us. And we are in love with you that we might be sealed Lord, help us to grapple with the truth. Things are not well on this planet and they are not well in this universe unless Jesus Christ goes to the cross and you have secured our salvation as individuals and you have saved the reputation of God at the same time. And so bless us, Lord God, in this week to come. Holy, holy, holy is our God, the one who was and is and is God. 